Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to the latest episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Lisa Picard, the CEO of EQ Office, the company formerly known as Equity Office, which is the office vertical of Blackstone and one of the largest owners and operators of office property in the United States. The conversation with Lisa was among the most interesting interviews I've had among the now dozens in Leading Voices. I think that my favorite part of the conversation was the consistent theme through Lisa's education and career of balancing numbers and bottom line thinking on the one hand with passion, creativity, and excellence on the other. We'll be joined mid-conversation with some commentary from Bruce Miller from our sponsor, JLL. Bruce co-heads the firm's capital markets platform in Chicago and specializes in office properties. Thanks again to JLL for its sponsorship. And for more information, go to jll.com voices. If you're enjoying the podcast series, I hope that you'll subscribe and please pass on to your friends in the business. If you have comments or suggestions, please go to our website at leadingvoicespodcast.com or feel free to email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Lisa, welcome and thanks for being a guest on Leading Voices in Real Estate. We have a lot to talk about and I want to get right into it, but let's give our listeners just a moment of a quick overview. Uh, you're the CEO of EQ Office, which at least we all know is Equity Office Properties. Or EOP, right. We started with a property. Well, you started with a company in 2016 as the COO and became CEO about a year ago. That's correct. And EQ Office is the office vertical of Blackstone Group. And Blackstone is the largest owner of office property. They're actually the largest Huge. owner of anything yeah, in the probably. world. Yeah, likely. <laughs> but you manage a part of their office portfolio. That's correct. And what you own, operate, and manage would make you third, fourth, fifth in the world or in the country in terms of office owner-operators like Heinz, Tishman, Spires, mm-hmm. Boston Properties, the world in which this company has been for a long time. So we have a lot to talk about your career, and I always like to start at the beginning, but make sure I have the headlines somewhat correct about what you're up to today and why we're talking. And then uh, we'll, we'll yeah. go way deep into for it later. Sure. But. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess headline, uh, you know, the office market is definitely changing. Um, there's, you know, shift in the way people do work today. And, you know, from a headline perspective, it's forcing owners of real estate to shift the way they've commonly done business. Um, and I would say maybe not causing them, but those that aren't realizing the shift, I think, are going to sort of experience a new sort of economic reality with their assets. And so for us, it's really sort of migrating what I would say has traditionally been a B2B company, like a business to business company, to um, a really a B2C company. You know, we are marketing to talent. We are marketing to workers. We are marketing to employees as opposed to marketing to executives and finding out the best locations nearest the golf club or executive housing. (laughs) So things have changed. Mm-hmm. And and as you're thinking of that you're marketing to the consumer, you're really marketing to the talent that That's those correct. employers yeah. care about. Right. Maybe B to T. <laughs> B to talent. Yeah, exactly. And uh, because as, as we've all looked at sort of what's happening with labor rate with labor today and, you know, the very, very tight unemployment rates um, that, um, you know, most of the growth that happens today for organizations is really through talent and mm-hmm. growing the expertise uh, within your organization because we're really not producing products per se. We're creating ideas. And mm-hmm. so, you know, organizations access to ideas is really through 
the collaboration, the connection of having really high quality talent, at least in the high growing companies. Mm -hmm. I'd also think in the world, of course, I'm sure we will talk about the WeWork phenomenon. For sure. But we can't talk, we can't broach this topic without, you know, (laughs) asking that question. Yeah, that being the headline. But but it's interesting because I, you know, I'm a small business owner. I tied up a five-year lease five years ago. Yeah. It was a big deal for me. I was uncomfortable. Yeah. And my company's grown, shrank, grown, shrank. That's and right. Shrunk. And then what do you do with that space that you're yeah. obligated to have in an economy where I can rent my car from someone else tomorrow yeah. in five minutes? I might want to do that with my yeah. office space. And I, and I think that segment is not you know, going away, you know, as, as many of sort of my counterparts, uh, big, large office owners think that, you know, at the times of, you know, Regis, when it failed, right, that this is just another one of those. And I think the thing that's changed is that technology has really advanced the way and changed the way we do work today. Um, mm-hmm. And if you think about it, I mean, we are, we are expe- experiencing stresses within sort of the traditional office portfolio, where retention rates, retaining a tenant is nowhere near where it used to be. And the reason is, is it's a lot easier to move a company today. You don't have servers to move. You don't have law libraries to move. You don't have, you you pick up your laptop and you can go. And so a lot of tenants are looking at what is the next new thing that's going to help me attract and retain and inspire talent. Other interesting question about that is over the last years, the multifamily industry has been the industry that's been the darling and the least volatile of the property types. That's right. And office has operated almost in the opposite fashion mm-hmm. because it's such a lumpy asset class. Yeah, high, and maybe high capital expenditures. Yeah, you're yeah. de-lumping these long-term yeah. commitments all coming due at the same time right. or potentially at the same time. Yeah, I mean, if you look, you know, 10 years ago, a business could sort of at least plan five to seven, 10 years, right? At least, you know, the the major ma- the majority portion of the organization could do that type of long-term planning, right? right. And today, I mean, what organization knows how big they're going to be in two years? I don't even know how big I'm going to be in two years. And yet, signing a 10-year lease, I I kid around with folks at the time mm-hmm. that Blackstone bought EOP 11 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist. Now, that's just kind of a normal lease term, right? And if you think about what's happened to society, what's happened to work, what's happened to business by these little devices that we can't right. seem to tear ourselves apart— um, you know, I think that just the the nature and the pace of change, we've never seen the the kind of change, right, in our industry as we've just seen and witnessed and experienced probably over the last five years. And guess what? It's never going to be this slow again. Interesting. So let, let's take that as a segue to kind of understanding you and your background and where you came from and how you got to this place. So Lisa, where did you grow up? What was your world? And what was your world before school? And yeah, help yeah. me think about that a little bit. So I I grew up in Downey, California, which Downey. is yeah famous, famous you know southeast LA County. Yep, uh, sort of the old orange groves that kind of converted in the uh, the fifties and the sixties to track homes. And uh, my father was a manufacturing tool engineer for Northrop, or actually from Rockwell first, and worked on the space shuttle. And he was actually a World War II vet. And it's really odd for someone my age to have a father who was in Normandy. But, you know, my parents were basically children of the Depression. And, you know, uh, you know, in that day and age, like my dad was 50 when I was born and my mom was 38. And, uh, and so, you know, I had twin sister, I had a, tw- I have a twin sister. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I think um, the interesting thing that I would sort of say that was really influential around that time is that 
um, you know, growing up with depression era parents who just really valued and respect every possession that they had. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I learned to sort of eat the entire apple core. I learned to eat, you know, chicken bones, you know, because like you you didn't let anything go to waste, you know? So I think, you know, having that sort of backbone of just cherish and respect resources was really, you know, rather unique. And I think both my parents were super highly curious people about the world. We couldn't, we didn't have a lot of money. So we kind of fabricated sort of world travel by, you know, being in a motorhome and, and, uh, you know, going camping each weekend or, you know, camping in a tent and that sort of things. And my mom sort of explored cooking, you know, from around the world by giving us all these different flavors and tastes because we couldn't afford to go out and eat and do that. Right. So I think it just sparked this curiosity. Mm-hmm. Did you have a sense as a kid, I listened to this funny podcast this morning about three people who had portrayed presidents on movies, and one of them said, no one becomes president or CEO of a company without knowing it in junior high school. And I didn't believe that. I don't think that's yeah. true. Do yeah. Any sense of that for you or your aspirations? Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, you know, I think that my parents never gave me any limitations. In fact, like, you know, I never knew that there was uh, sort of limitations on little girls or, mm-hmm. you know, or women in that general or, or even ethnicity. And so I think I sort of like viewed the world as sort of my oyster and I could do whatever I wanted. But yet, you know, there's always sort of this, you do what's sort of in proximity to you and what you know. And the challenge was is that my father, you know, worked for uh, Northrop and he was working on the B1B and he couldn't talk about his work. So, you know, as a curious kid and trying to dive into sort of what your dad does for a living, I couldn't, I couldn't get at it. So I kept looking for sort of like examples in my world of things that I was fascinated by. And I noticed that like, as I, you know, walked to school, I was just drawn into sort of the dimensions of sidewalks and how it influenced the way I felt. And so I, I, you know, at a very young age, I was kind of keen to sort of like look at my urban environment and just sort of recast it in my mind, Mm -hmm. you know, and I would, you know, like every kid play with, you know, I played more with sort of like Legos and Lincoln logs and, you know, created things, you know, out of the dirt in the front yard than, than maybe most little girls. (laughs) Uh Probably true. And then you went to Cal State Pomona and yeah. studied urban planning or yeah I, I did I um I, I actually you know thought I wanted to be an architect and I actually applied to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo I missed the deadline and didn't get in and so my mom said well why don't you go try planning I think you'll like it I was like mom I don't even know what it is so I ended up going into the program uh you know immediately I started to sort of like work in professional planning practice and r- really for a company that did a lot of work for Irvine company uh-huh. and we were I was you know at the age of 17 doing grading design, you know, of new uh, subdivision tracks, you know, in Newport Hills for the Irvine company for, you know, while I was going to school because I wanted to see if I liked it. And so by the time I graduated from Cal Poly, I, you know, had four years of work experience. And, and uh, I immediately had developed relationships with the city of Los Angeles. And uh, largely because I was, I was a big advocate of using technology. I was coding when I was, you know, in high school. Uh, I had purchased a really expensive computer my first year in college. And I was, you know, inserting cards and, you know, manipulating this thing and then figuring out how to do visualizations to help people understand mm-hmm. kind of the urban environment, like early, early on before, you know, I think even architectural firms were using anything digital. No AutoCAD or anything no, like that. No, no, AutoCAD didn't exist but you're at this playing time. With it. Yeah, and I was playing with it just to kind of create some way to visually communicate. And I it caught the eye of planning director at the city of Los Angeles and a number of people that they 
they asked me to kind of help them with some of the workshops. And that kind of parlayed into me asking them f- for a letter of recommendation um, for grad school. And, uh, and, you know, it's, I think a lot of times, unfortunately, it's kind of who you know, not necessarily what you know, but I'd like to think it was both. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I knew that like after working in private planning practice and working for a lot of developers on different, you know, urban plans for ski resorts to Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica to, you know, um, civic plans that there were these people called developers that were you know, looking at a different rule book than what I was looking at. Right. And, um, you know, I could keep, you know, fostering my professional career in a defensive move, but I decided, you know, I wanted to really kind of play in the offense. And, uh, and so I had decided that I was going to go back to grad school and, you know, do a dual degree. One that I wanted kind of a little bit more depth in the planning side, but more on the urban economics. And, uh, and I also felt like kind of going to sort of a heady school like MIT, you know, I needed some safety in a subject matter that I, that I liked, you know, quite honestly. Right. And, uh, and then, you know, I, uh, I added the real estate finance piece of it to really understand the mechanics of what went into making property. Right. Because, and it's, and it's actually been one of the things that I advocate to anybody who's going to school that, you know, just take finance because everything in this world, I mean, if you want to start study art theory, Uh great, but then take finance because somewhere, you know, an artist is going to need financing or whatever it is that your passion is, it's going to need to figure out how to get money Mm -hmm. because money really what moves, you know, things in this world. So it doesn't work unless it makes economic sense. That's right. Like love it or hate it. It's just the truth of the world. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting. uh, My daughter, who's probably listening at this moment, but she is applying to MIT and she wants she she wants the urban design part and the the finance and business parts less interesting yeah, to her. Yeah. But she has to have it. Yeah, it it's it's what adds the fuel. Yeah. You know, to everything that you want to do. And when you understand that dynamic and you uh-huh. understand the language, you can achieve your objectives in the other world so much easier. So much easier. Right. It's also the, uh, you've said this, but it's the currency of conversation, right? Because otherwise you're, and I just could be a pure idea person, but the ideas have to be rooted. They have to be rooted in some way in which you can achieve it in this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So you went to MIT. (laughs) I did. And then came out and how did you navigate and get started in your post-MIT career? You know, I mean, there's a little bit of a, you know, another sort of interesting twist to the story um, is because like just before I was deciding to go to MIT, I, you know, I knew that um, well, I was like, actually going to cl- apply to Cal or MIT. And then I fundamentally knew that, like, you know, wherever you're going to study, you know, real estate or urban design or architecture, for that matter, your environment is your textbook. And mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, the Southland, L.A., West Coast had been a very strong textbook. Mm-hmm. But it was one textbook in sort of the nation's history. Right. And uh, and so I felt like, you know, the MIT experience being in Boston you know, uh, sort of a uh, an older city that had not grown up around the automobile, that that would give a whole nother, you know, sense of education. And so actually just before I, you know, actually the day that I got my letter, I called my dad and I said, hey, I got in. My dad was from the East Coast and he was super excited. And then, you know, oddly enough, the very next day, my mom calls me at work and says, hey, you know, um, I go, why, why are you calling at work? Why are you calling me at work? And she said, hey, your father's had a sudden heart attack. And I went, oh, wow, is he okay? And she said, no. And I was like, what does no mean? What does no mean? And eventually she said something about the body. And I knew that my dad had passed away instantly. So sorry. 
just right before I was going to, right. to head off to school. And I could see in my mom that she was just sort of torn apart, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I knew that I had to go. I just had to go. And, you know, over that next year, my mom just kind of deteriorated so much so that, like, that summer she passed away. So you're kind of like, Lisa, where's this story going? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but basically, you know, what happened is, you know, I realized in all those moments, like, you, you suddenly, like, when you have that kind of passing of your parents, you know, at the age of 22, I'm having my midlife crisis. Because right. you realize, like, the redcoats just went down in front of me and I'm the next one to take the bullet, right? Mm-hmm. And you also realize this, like, really phenomenal thing, I would say, what you were doing things for. Mm-hmm. And there was so much being driven by, oh, I would say, like, pleasing your parents. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're not there. And you go, who am I pleasing? And you're like, oh, my gosh, I got to do what's right. For yourself, right? Yeah. Totally. For myself and for what I felt like, I guess I would say what I felt, you know, would influence the world. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, you know? Yeah. So... I decided that after, you know, being in Boston, I really wanted to be back on the West Coast. And it was a horrible job market. I I shouldn't say horrible, but 2005 was not a great job market. And, you know, I decided I'm going to be in San Francisco because everybody says San Francisco's the bomb. I'm going to, you know, you live here, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm like, San Francisco's the bomb. I'm going to San Francisco. And uh, my my roommate who, you know, worked, who was going to school at the uh, Harvard GSD said, oh, there's no way you're going to get a job there. And I was determined. And, uh, and so I had this kind of strategy that I would just meet with people and I would just ask them questions about the industry because I really wanted to get into finance because I figured I had a design background and I needed to prove to the world right. that I could do the hard science. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so I would just, you know, spend time meticulously being super curious about every person I met, never asking them for a job, but learning about what was happening in the industry. So by the time I got to the fourth or the fifth person, right, I knew more about their industry than they did. And they're like, holy crap, like we got to hire this person, right? Right. So I, uh, you know, flew back home and uh, to my uh, roommates, uh, you know, surprise, there were like four job offers on the, on the answering machine when I got home. And uh, I ended up taking one for a small boutique uh, investment advising firm that was advising uh, you know, the pension funds in real estate. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason why I chose them, um, one is it just felt like you could do everything. And it was the greatest experience in that, you know, two guys ran the shop. Um, they were really, you know, kind of well-known in the industry. They gave young people within their organization a remarkable, you know, long leash to sort of buy, you know, buildings, you know, underwrite them, buy them, manage them, asset manage them, and sell them. So, right. you did it from soup to nuts. Right. And I got to understand the whole sort of language of finance and investment. Uh-huh. I got to understand what made those spreadsheets tick. And then I also got to understand, you know, what didn't make them tick and, you know, how I could sort of blend the world of really doing high quality design or high quality moves that the market would value and that would show up in a spreadsheet. Right. And that was here in San Francisco? That was, yeah. What, what group was that? That was Bristol Group. Uh-huh. So Jim yeah. and Jeff. Yeah, yeah you know probably those guys. guys. They're amazing. Yeah. Let yeah. me ask a question. This goes back a few minutes if we can do it. Yeah, totally. W- without your parents and yeah. realizing you had something to live for so make a difference, was your answer to the what you'd focus on making a difference, would that have been their answer 
Or no. were you unfettered by the answer they might have had for their aspirations I was for you unfettered. to yourself? Yeah, I was unfettered, completely uh-huh. unfettered. And like, you know, I, I I literally remember like flying on a red-eye flight back to Boston after I'd sold my parents' home. And I, I like had this moment like, why the hell am I doing this? Why right. am I going back to MIT to get a degree? Who's going to say like, add a girl, you know? And I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's me, That's right. you know? And it was remarkable how many times through the journey of like being in school, I like instinctively went to go pick up the phone, right? Like, you know, dial, in right. those days dial, um, but but pick it up and, you know, call my parents and just share something, right? There's something cool that happened. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to just enjoy this, right? I can enjoy this, right? And so I think... That just, I mean, anybody who's lost a parent sort of, they'll tell you this, right? That, you know, suddenly you realize what's worth it and what's not worth it. Mm -hmm. Because you realize, oh, this thing isn't, doesn't go on forever, right? Mm -hmm. It does like have have an ending to it. And so I'm going to make sure my ending's really good, you know, is kind of the point in it. And and, and because you're kind of at that stage, like, what do I have to lose, right? Uh-huh. Oh, totally fascinating. Okay, so back to the story. So you're here at Bristol Group. You're yeah. actually learning what a deal looks like. Uh, all deals, right? And then kind of like meeting with people and trying to surface up deals. Mm-hmm. You know, that whole kind of dynamic. And, you know, I'm kind of partnered with other people who are young and, you know, just as eager and right. we're teaching and we're le- It's like grad school had continued, but in the real, real world. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ultimately, I've been looking for, you know, that that was sort of like core finance. Right. And I'd been looking for an opportunity to get back, to get to development, you know, to build things, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think, you know, my father always built things and it was sort of the nature of of what I, you know, kind of really was interested in. And so, um, a colleague of mine that I had gone to MIT with, um, who was working for Heinz, and said, hey, you know, we've got some opportunities opening up. There's one here in San Francisco, but there's also one in Seattle. I think you should come in and, and talk to us. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. So I did. And, um, you know, I met the guys here locally in, at the Heinz office in San Francisco. And they said, hey, you know, um, we, we've got two opportunities. We think the one in Seattle is going to be, you know, a better opportunity for you. Um, and, you know, are you interested? And I said, yeah, let's do it. And I think I'd been up to Seattle once as a kid, you know, right. and so, you know, what I think it rains there a lot, uh-huh. but I just packed up and I uh, I moved to Seattle and, and um, you know, I mean, over the course of a couple of years, um, actually five years with them, built over a million square feet of spec office space, really sunk my teeth into, you know, building um, thinking about the process of how you develop real estate. And, you know, I'll tell you, there's no other, there's no better company than Heinz to really, you know, go to school uh, in development because the rigor and the regimen and the understanding of what it takes to build a building and particularly office buildings was remarkable. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. an unbelievable education. And, and probably as much as any company in the world, they want to build a great office building. Yeah. They just don't want to get it up. We Gerald Hines yeah. was on the yeah. on the podcast a couple months yeah. ago and talked about all that. But. Yeah. And he, you know, I mean, he pitched his first, I mean, everybody knows the story when they work at Heinz, you know, him pitching his first office building by, you know, bringing in the lever door hardware because he right. wanted to sort of make this statement of quality. And that statement of quality really existed in in the things that the company built and the way they thought about building. Mm-hmm. And important for you with your background, because now yeah. it comes together with yeah. doing a transaction. And yeah seeing the quality and making it. Yeah. Difference. And, you know, I mean, I was there during the heyday of the dot-com, 
you know, and rode that up, you know, leased a building three times, you know, mm-hmm. in the same cycle. Oh my God. And then, you know, when the dot-com bomb happened and, you know, as we, we know, it hit pretty hard in Seattle and also San Francisco, right? Such that San Francisco never really had a peak in 2007 because it was really back in 2000. It was still burying it, right. <laughs> digging itself out. Seattle was similar, um, but not as quite as deep. And, uh, you know, the unleasing of a building was, you know, having gone through a cycle and feeling that cycle, you know, having gone through two now, right, or actually kind of three in my career, but feeling that cycle and, you know, experiencing sort of like, you know, how far will this go? Will there be, you know, demand that kind of comes and picks picks back up and sort of just surfacing for anything that breathes, you know, to kind of fill and lease your building. Right. Um, you know, it was a was a pretty, pretty cool experience, you know, to to sort of makes you smarter in the up cycles um, mm-hmm. when you go through the down. I haven't heard anyone say the word unleasing a building. I've heard emptying yeah. out, but I just haven't heard unleasing. That's yeah. an interesting well, dynamic. Yeah. I mean, th- some people are unleasing buildings today just because there's right. economic ar- opportunity, particularly in this city, right? right. You know, Value if you can add. get back to this, you can get back the space, you know that many other people want it because the market's so tight. But in that day, uh, you know, we had leased to, you know, companies that were 30,000 square feet and they wanted 250,000 square feet. And they posted what we called a BALC, which is a big ass letter of credit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, to secure 250,000 feet and they built out the whole thing, right, with Cisco service, Herman Miller chairs and the whole thing. And then, when oh. the yeah boom happened, they were still only fifteen thousand square feet, and they wanted to, you know, we wanted to try and figure out how they can still be an ongoing business without having this unbelievable, you know, LC that was just going to take them down. Right. So you know, in those days, we, what we did is we we figured like, well, if we're going to release an obligation, a debt liability, we you know we want some you know warrants in the company. You know, because if if somehow you make it, then we're attributed to sort of the reason why you make it. So it was negotiating warrants, reducing the amount of square footage in the building, you know, having a little bit of runway, and then releasing the building. Uh-huh. So that was the deleasing or the unleasing of a building. How many of those warrants came back and made you money? Zero. Yeah, I thought so. Zero. <laughs> I remember those warrant <laughs> days. People were so excited yeah. in our business. Okay, so then um, how long were you at Heinz and what came next? Uh, I was there a little over five years Uh and, you know, um, at that point in time, like the office market wasn't coming back. You know, Heinz wanted to move me back to LA. I developed a pretty strong community in Seattle and, you know, I uh, joined a a local development company that was actually partnered with Vulcan Uh on a number of deals and helped position a couple of um, assets, uh, particularly a lot of multifamily. Um, because multifamily was actually doing quite well and some development opportunities were were surfacing as well as some biotech um, mm-hmm. for this company. And so uh, there I developed a relationship with, uh, you know, Ada Healy and, and folks at, at Vulcan. And then, you know, somewhere in that tenure, I had, um, you know, a colleague that I had worked with long ago uh, in design who had now been working in Tucson, Arizona. And he uh, introduced me to the president of Canyon Ranch. And Canyon Ranch, because he, he and I had a real, you know, great relationship. And uh-huh. Canyon Ranch was about ready to go on a brand expansion. And I was kind of at that stage in your career where I call it sort of mid-career, where just, you know, no one seems smart enough. Everything seems like you've done it before. It feels like your career is going nowhere. You start sort of, you know, looking at like, oh, should I become a naturopathic doctor? How about a fireman? I mean, like, literally, I went through all of these things, like, even taking the fire person's test because uh-huh. I was so bored at my wow. job. Yeah. I, I, I guess it was somewhat of a weak moment, but it wasn't in that Canyon Ranch approached me and said, hey, let us show you something that's going on. 
and we think you'll be interested. And what they showed me was the value of brand. And for Canyon Ranch, they had a brand recognition, you know, with 200 room keys that was, you know, one that people trusted their life with. And they were developing a a property in South Florida and Miami Beach, and they were getting pricing that was double the, the pricing of the adjacent condo project. And I was like, why is it double? I don't, I mean, like all of my math, right, right. and all of my finance training didn't like, and, and I would say like the finishes didn't necessarily were that spectacular to tell you that it could pay double, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was so intrigued that I wanted to learn how do you create brand value? What is brand value and how do you create brand value? I decided to leave my job, leave uh, Seattle. Actually, I didn't fully leave Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, I kept my residence in Seattle and I commuted down to Tucson to uh-huh. join them as the head of development for Canyon Ranch Resorts. And, and let me ask a question. It's interesting because you think of Heinz among those of us who understand the office business as a pretty good brand, yeah. maybe the best brand. Right. But it doesn't have that differential pricing because an office building is more or less an office building. Yeah, I would say it's largely a commodity. Yeah. Right? But I would say, you know, if you're debating between a Heinz asset and sort of, you know, adjacent asset, that like it's enough of a differentiator that you'll select it, but not get a premium, right? Right. But now you're talking into the premium premium world, so you're going to learn about that. Yes, Uh exactly. And, um, And I think, you know, the other thing that was really remarkable in terms of, you know, migrating my, my, um, experience from office to multifamily to residential is that the stay got shorter and shorter. And so the other interesting thing that happens when you see the stay get shorter and shorter is the level of service and operations kicks up. Right. It has to. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got a vacancy every night, you've got to be on your game, right? As opposed to a vacancy every seven to 10 years, yep. right? You're like, oh, oh, let's check in on the tenant, right? It's like six months to go, right? Um, but uh, but at Canyon Ranch, you could really see what service did to the whole model and what it did to, you know, sort of, I think, reputationally when a customer walked out the door and what they said about the brand, Right. right. Canyon Ranch had, you know, 25 docs and PhDs on staff. They basically looked at, you know, an individual and they saw each individual as kind of a case and they would staff the case, you know, holistically. Like, it's like the most amazing collaboration I've ever seen, (laughs) right? Where someone gets a, uh, let's say, a, a DNA test, right? And they discovers, well, you don't utilize vitamin D very well. We should probably you know, do a bone density scan. Okay, so, but your weight, you're only 27. Okay, well, let's do a bone density scan. So they do a bone density scan. Oh, you're pre-osteopenia in like, you know, portions of your spine, not your hip because you're an amazing runner because they'd have like these amazing athletes kind of show up. Mm-hmm. So they bring in the PT guy who was a US, UCLA PhD. And he said, look, you never have to lose bone mass, right? That, that you have two two different bone crews. So they would then they'd bring in the, the the nutritionist who would give you the right kind of like supplementation program, like you'd mega dose vitamin Ds once a week so your body could absorb it. Right. So it was all of these things. And then basically they had set up what I would call, and I learned sort of, you know, the Joseph Campbell journey, which I apply today in everything that we do from a real estate perspective. And it's really about the experience. And I learned that how you could actually shape a person's experience um, and how you could sort of heal people before they saw their healer. You could shape a person's sort of like, you know, self, you know, worth and, and value just by, you know, the sequence of spaces that we could create. 
And then obviously the level of service we would put on over the top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was profound. And the, the most kind of simple takeaway, if I'm going to say, okay, this experience and, you know, how did it influence the way I think about, you know, office buildings? How did it influence the way I thought about cities? How did it influence, you know, even building apartments? Is that humanistically, there's always got to be an invitation, right? And so mm-hmm. when I say an invitation, that's the brand piece of the promise of whatever it is when I have an engagement with this piece of real estate. And then there is, and I think about it almost like a wedding, okay? So there's the invitation. Mm-hmm. Then there is the processional. And now I'll tell you, in every office building, we talk about the talent processional. So what is the path people have to walk from this from the street to their seat? Right. And how does that feel and how does it start to kind of evoke the sense of this ceremony or this event that's going to happen, whether it be at work, whether it be when I get to an apartment, whether I get to the hotel or the wedding altar, right? right. It's that whole processional and how does it feel and is it building to this kind of crescendo moment? Right. Right. And then when you have that crescendo moment, you have to have some place to break bread, community, right? Uh In the wedding, it's a reception. You know, in the hotel, it's definitely, you know, the eating venues. Right. Um, You know, and now you'll see, obviously, in every office building, there's these amenities and communal places that are brought in so that people have that place to share stories. Right. So all of that has really helped me understand and teach other people how do you create experience, right? Uh Because people, really value that experience and are willing to pay a premium for it. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting. Two two comments. One, the word authentic is overused, but or but maybe it's expensive because what you describe with all yeah. the doctors and all the yeah, people yeah. who know their stuff yeah. is it's not an empty promise. It's a promise that's backed up by right. maybe expensive reality. Right. Second, right. I do have a story I haven't told in, in some number of years, but my wife used to work at, at EOP office building at One Market Street, Spear Street, one of the towers there just yeah. years ago. And I would pick her up every couple days, and one of the men at the front desk, he would see me come around the corner, and he'd go, Matt, let me call Diane. And then I I sent a note to Tim Callahan, one of your predecessors yep. who ran EOP. I sent him a note and told him the story about that guy. Yeah. About two weeks later, I'm walking down the street, and this thing comes from behind me and grabs me. (laughs) And it was the doorman guy. Yeah. And he said, thank you so much. Mr. Callahan gave me a commendation because you had sent a note. Yeah, it's the smallest little thing. And (laughs) it moved me. It clearly moved him, right? But leadership, that's reality, not— totally." empty. Totally. Yeah. And what happens is, is that those small little instances, whether, you know, someone has an experience with a therapist or a doc at Canyon Ranch and then shares it with five other people. Right. Uh And that's sort of the, the, the piece that I think, you know, Seth Godin talks about is about being remarkable. Uh You're so good and you're so, you know, um, attentive to sort of the needs of your marketplace that people will make a remark about you. You're remarkable. Uh Right. right. And so I, I love to share that story internally because I think it's, it's, you know, kind of the motivation of what we aspire to. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to the career because we yeah. want to then talk about the office space. So what happens after Canyon Ranch? So um, I, uh, you know, I had such a a deep level of curiosity with everybody on the property, and I wanted to learn so much from the nutritionists and the PTs and and everybody that I got to be really, really well known. Um, And uh, so much so that I think it started to kind of influence my relationship with the president. And I think the president felt a little bit not, not entirely aligned with sort of my communication. I was let go. 
So, uh, you know, those are kind of like one of those like signature moments, yeah. you know, that like, honestly, it hurt more than losing my parents. I mean, it seems odd to say that, uh-huh. but I think what happens is when you are really tied into like a really powerful workplace that that you just connect with, right? That, you know, sometimes you let it become a part of your identity. And when you do, and it's ripped from you, Really hard. And, you know, I mean, the crazy thing is, it's like after that experience, um, I came back home to Seattle and I just remember calling, you know, a buddy of mine at Morgan Stanley. And the first thing I call is like, you know, uh, yeah, this is Lisa Picard. And they're like, yeah, who, uh, who are you with? And I'm like, ah. Uh. Oh, you don't have that no more. <laughs> yeah, it was like gone for me, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, I think the hugest learning lesson I got from that is that, you know, I am not you know, Lisa Picard at Canyon Ranch. I'm not Lisa Picard at EQ or EOP or whatever, right? I am Lisa Picard. Mm -hmm. And I think ever since that move, it helped me establish a separate identity from what what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. And also it's allowed me to be, I think, more uh, sort of forthright and, you know, willing to lose it. You know, doing the right thing. Not doing the thing to keep the job, but doing the right thing that essentially creates the value. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes those can be different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came back to Seattle uh, and, you know, instantly when I came back, a lot of people were asking me to, um, you know, help them uh, do some work and partner with them. And so I decided to, you know, uh, go do some development on my own. And I opened up uh, Muse Development. I had, you know, a couple of partners. Um, We invested in a couple of deals, mostly multifamily. And then I did, uh, you know, some uh, fee development stuff just because there was a lot of families in Seattle that had interesting properties. And so we repositioned them, developed them. Uh, One was a... um, a houseboat community on Lake Union. So it was super fun. fun. Yeah. yeah, just learning all about that and just the maritime community and just all the regulations and, you know, the history around houseboats in Seattle is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I helped a couple of uh, families out uh, on the east side of Seattle as well. And, you know, I was it was great. I mean, I had very great flexibility in my schedule. You know, it was a lot of um, interesting work, but it wasn't big work. And I got approached by Skanska uh, five years into that. And Skanska, you know, is a large international construction, mostly construction company yeah. and had been doing development in Europe and uh, was starting to go, uh, you know, uh, do development in the U.S. Uh, and they had already opened up three offices, uh, one in Boston, one in Texas or Houston uh, and the other one in D.C. And they were going to do a West Coast expansion and they decided they were going to come into Seattle. And, uh, you know, I was actually having kind of a good time at what I was doing. They asked me to come meet with them and I flew to New York and the conversation was something like this, you know, it was kind of like, so let me get this, let me get this right. You guys finance everything yourself. Yes. Okay. So you don't have, you don't have any lenders. No, you don't, you don't have any like, like investors. No. Okay. All right. So if I'm going to contemplate doing this for you guys in Seattle, I want to know that I'm actually going to be part of the investment decision of what we actually put on the dirt, what we, what we put on the ground. And the guy looked at me and he said, well, 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 of course, who else would do it? And I was like, oh my God. Right. Right. I mean, you suddenly like have this opportunity to develop without the constraints of like financing or investors. You just have to justify that you can sell it at the end of the day <laughs> for a return. 
It, and that they get rid of it. So this doesn't hold forever. Yeah, this no, is, it's total so merchant, merchant building. Build total become, total okay. merchant building. But I would call like Skanska interesting. It's like merchant building with a heart. Because mm-hmm. there's this kind of Scandinavian Swedish thing that's really committed to environmental quality, community, you know, uh, you know, placemaking. So there is, you know, a deep commitment and almost sort of like a competition, I would say, internally between countries about how good someone can do that. Competition between countries on how someone yeah, well, can do so that. There's a lot of there's a lot of collaboration between like all the countries at which Skanska operates. They uh-huh. have a Polish unit. They've got you know a you know a, a Scandinavian unit. Norway, you know Gothenburg, Stockholm, Forget Copenhagen, it. right? London. Mm-hmm. And so when I say a bit of a competition, it was a friendly competition within that company. Yeah, within that company of like who could outdo each other. Right in yeah. terms of the and in terms of the superlative nature of which things got built, it, that was my sense of it. It was never spoken that way, but it was definitely uh-huh. my sense of it. So, talk about the superlative nature of the things you built in Seattle in yeah. that time frame, because that's an amazing yeah. period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will tell you, it was super fun. Right. Um, so the first thing, uh, you know, I ended up hiring a colleague of mine that I worked at with at uh, Skanska, Murphy McCullough. And, you know, I said, hey, if I'm going to take this job, you, you know, you'd be interested in joining me. Here's the details. And he's like, a construction company? I go, yeah, but here's the details. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm in. So, uh, so anyway, Murphy joined me. And uh, essentially, day one, you know, we were sort of, you know, interested in, in shaping things around the city that we felt, you know, weren't getting done the way that built built a real city and mm-hmm. uh what was getting built in downtown in south lake union felt a lot like the suburbs coming to the city because the lo- the land parcels were were larger and you know i i could see that there was a dynamic of where you know everybody if they could live and work in the neighborhoods like capitol hill fremont um queen anne right if they could live in the work in the neighborhoods they would love it right so we said how can we bring neighborhood to the city and uh, and so that was kind of our big bent. Um, and at the time, we had also learned that Brooks Sports was, you know, in the market looking for new headquarters. And they were debating whether or not to kind of move in from the suburbs. They were out in Bothell. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I got an opportunity to kind of talk with their brokers. And, you know, I said, why are, why are they considering the suburbs? I mean, they're competing against Nike and New Balance. And those guys are, you know, in Boston and Portland. And, you know, they're trying to hire young talent. They, they need to be in the city. Like we need to find them, you know, a site on the city's most loved urban trail, the Burke Gilman. Let's, and they're like, I need to get you a, a meeting with Jen. I was like, right. okay. So next thing you know, um, we're kind of, Murphy and I are kind of perusing around this neighborhood Fremont where we knew the trail exposed itself. And we managed to negotiate an agreement, kind of a quasi agreement with a landowner to do a ground lease. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have this thing under contract. And uh, we uh, managed to get a meeting with Jim Weber, who's still the CEO of Brooks. Great guy. And uh, we sold him a vision. We said, we need to build you a trailhead on the city's most loved urban trail. Uh-huh. And he's like, we showed him a picture. And the only way that he could actually develop the amount of quantity on that site is the city had passed new legislation that if you built sort of a almost, you know, living building, right? Like uber, uber green, that um, you could get extra zoning for the site. Mm-hmm. So we pitched this building to him and he was comparing it with a bunch of other buildings. And I'll never forget, like, the day he called us, because we knew he was going to decide that day. Right. He calls us, and he's like, you know, Lisa, I don't know what your building is. I don't even know if you can build it. I just know I need to be there. Wow. 
So we ended up signing a lease, uh-huh. right, before I even had land control. We didn't even have it designed, and we signed right. a lease, right? It was just an unbelievable amount of trust because he could feel our passion. You know, he could feel right. our absolute passion. He could feel that we were going to deliver on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And man, there was it was a battle because we didn't even have the zoning, okay, mind you, to build this. Okay. And, uh, and I think, you know, there was a couple of moves from some community members that were absolutely strategic that came down to, you know, a very narrow vote at city council after we'd probably spent a couple million dollars on design and processes. Um, but we got it approved and we got it built. And after like so many years, it was remarkable that he, he called me, you know, and I was like, oh gosh, he's going to complain about something. And he said, Lisa, I never thought we'd have it so good. I hope you're all enjoying my conversation with Lisa. I wanted to take a moment to hear some insights from Bruce Miller, who's an international director with our sponsor, JLL. He co-heads the firm's capital markets platform in Chicago and specializes in office properties. Bruce, we've been hearing about Lisa's experience in an ever-evolving landscape of office development. What significant changes are you seeing? I think the office landscape is really broadening. First of all, not only are we seeing investors looking at large glass and steel buildings, but we're seeing far more of them taking a look at creative office buildings. We're seeing far more aggressive pricing very recently in that more creative type of office space. I would say that we're seeing interest in emerging submarkets, just areas where we're seeing a little bit more of that combination of live, play, work. And I would say that we're seeing a trend of urbanization that's having a major impact on investor appetite. Bruce, thanks for your commentary and back to the conversation with Lisa. That is such a great story. It's interesting because you sold him a vision and a concept. Yeah. Others probably had a floor or a building yeah. or a warehouse. Well, I think Marty Selig actually had a, a shoe that he was rotating on the top of his building. He was promising to put a shoe on the top of his existing building. So that and would move people. That would, yeah, that would move people <laughs> away. No. Um, but also, it, I'm con- comparing that to um, Gerald Hines walking with a lock set. Yeah. Yeah. Because you sold a th- concept. You sold yeah. an idea. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it was funny because, you know, Jim's attorney was like, Jim, don't do this. What do you do? You know, but I think, you know, in the end, it uh-huh. just paid off for all of us. You yeah. Know? And and how does when, because you started this by saying you're bringing neighborhood to the city. Now you're yeah. combining these things we've talked about for this period of time. One is design and desire to make a difference, and the other is making dough. How much money are you going to make for me today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. was this a merchant build, and at the end, did yeah, you we get sold the yeah. increased value we because did. of we that? Did. Yeah, we definitely did. I mean, it was a ground lease, so, you know, ground leases are always a bit constrained on the exit, but uh, mm-hmm. we we made more than what we thought we would make. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we sort of underwrote it pretty tight, just because, you know, it was, this was early, what was this? This was like kind of 2000. 11, 12, I'm trying to think about the time. So it was right. kind of like, you know, the first real new building deal that was a second new building deal that was done in Seattle after the, uh-huh. you know, 2008, you know, decline. So, right. but yeah, and then I think, you know, at the same time we were doing that, we were also looking for more property and we were very, very focused on South Lake Union. And um, we, you know, Murphy, my colleague managed to free up uh, a piece of uh, dirt that was right in the core on Fairview. And, uh, you know, we had a vision there that that's was, you know, this was going to be the spec building and in the core of, you know, where a lot of buildings were getting built, um, particularly by Vulcan and uh, Amazon started to kind of consume a lot of property in right. that neighborhood. 
And that one was really sort of, I think, the the magic building. Um, we really focused on how do we bring neighborhood to this one? Um, because, you know, the Brooks building was really sort of, you know, creating a trailhead and a trailhead experience around, you know, kind of the community aspect uh, of that. And we attracted retail tenants and so forth, you know, to the base of that building. But this one was different. We, uh, you know, consciously decided to sideload the core. We, you know, we consciously made the lobby the most smallest lobby for, you know, a 330,000 square foot office building that you could possibly make. It was really just an elevator vestibule. Mm -hmm. Because what we knew is that like, you know, today's workforce really just wanted to get out of the building as fast as they could. When they made the commitment, they didn't want to walk through a mausoleum, you know, Mm -hmm. which is how most office buildings are designed. Even new ones here in San Francisco today, big, huge lobbies that are really just, they've been statements of the corporation. They've been statements of the organization. And really, you know, what, what companies want is they want a statement of lifestyle of what, you know, their organization represents. And so we wanted to deliver on that. And we created just this massive volumed type hall and we double loaded retail on this building. And the biggest thing is that we said is like, you know, humans love to be outside. (laughs) And I think if one thing that I continue to bring to um, anything that I do is to bring humanity to it. (laughs) And I think the way in which we designed office buildings previously, or quite honestly, anything in the city was not with humanity considered. And so a lot of this was like, we designed the office building to actually breathe. So (laughs) both ends of the building open up. And so it's like the ground floor of the building is indoor outdoor. And, you know, in Seattle with such a temperate climate, you could do that probably 80, 80% of the, the year. 80% 80% of the time of the year. But I think the most interesting story is in its lease up. And as we were leasing it up, and particularly as it took shape, because it felt different than anything else in the market. And you'd walk into this building and more than once, you know, that the the, the uh, tenants, um, or I would say the uh the uh the the various tenants, the users in the in the market would walk through and they're like, this has soul. Like that would be the word they would use, right? And it's almost sort of like, I remember eating uh, Peruvian food from this woman, this beautiful woman. And she, you know, I said, God, this food is so delicious. Why is this so delicious? And she's like, That's because so... we put lo- we put love in it, you know? Uh-huh. And it was something like that. Like everybody who was on this project, we just instilled our passion into sort of creating something special. And, uh, and so, you know, when it came time to sort of lease and, you know, there was two other buildings that were actually being built at the same time. And- I think, you know, sort of the market rent, you know, for the, for the average building, you know, that was kind of, uh, you know, new, new construction was probably 30 triple net. And, you know, we sort of said, hey, you know, the broker came to us with a proposal. What's your proposal? We're like 37 triple net. And so they'd go, okay, hey, you know, here's, we've got, you know, the, another, another offer here. And, uh, you know, it's, how about, how about, we got one for 30, how about, uh, how about 30, 33 triple net? And then we're like, 37 triple net and we just we believed in the product right mm-hmm. and we believed people wanted it right because we were leasing up pretty pretty good we had a great reputation everybody wanted to see the building wow. right uh-huh. and uh and so we held our rate right where all of our competitors were leasing at 30 we were leasing or 31 we were leasing at 37 with you know minimal com- concessions like just you know fixed during period and a normal you know tenant improvement allowance and did so, the tenants feel it was worth that money because they could keep and maintain yeah. and you know, get the, staff yeah i mean the funny thing is is that we 
we built it with a vision that we were going to help technology tenants, you know, be drawn to Seattle. We we had this like vision that we were going to help Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. Retain and attract talent because we we're going to create great workplace, right? Mm-hmm. And we wanted to think about how we could provide for that next future company, right? That, that was out there. Right. But the funny thing was, is that all the, you know, the, the tenants that needed it the most were traditional tenants. You know, we leased to Tommy Bahama, we mm-hmm. leased to Delta Dental, we leased to a hardware company because hardware is not as sexy as software. So they needed, you know, an asset like right. this. And if you think about it, all of these companies are competing for the same talent, you know, for the most part, unless, you know, you're, you're trying to attract a software engineer, but if you're looking for, you know, administrative people or accounting people or what have you, right, they're all competing for the same talent and they needed some killer app. And, uh, we drew and we attracted and, and, you know, a a customer we, we didn't think we would get. And that was the first, the first that stepped up and took it. In the old days, it used to be fancier building more marble, but you're yeah. talking about more experience, oh, not yeah, more this marble. Was, this was like exposed concrete. We had exposed right. conduit on the ground floor. You know, no one dropped a ceiling. You know, it was uh, it was a modern building yeah. for sure. So let, let me change subjects and ask you a question about Seattle at that moment in time. Yeah. And I, I want to get to a question about women in real estate mm-hmm. because I have three friends. So you mentioned Ada Healy yeah. and AP Hurt AP is Hurt, there. Yeah. There's probably right. others. But those yeah. are, and AP was on the podcast last year. What What's going on in Seattle and what <laughs> makes the way that that city was developing fit women in development, which is such a male-dominated yeah. business traditionally? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, I don't know if I have a direct answer to it, but I just do, do know that culturally, Seattle's business community uh, feels different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that has a lot to do with sort of the Scandinavian roots of people who founded, you know, the city, um, you know, back in the day. And, you know, there's definitely sort of like, if you if you want to understand, you know, sort of Seattle, you can sort of read a bit about Swedish culture, uh-huh. you know, because this this whole sort of like, you know, dance at a stop sign, you go, uh, no, you go, no, you go kind of thing, right? right? That exists in Portland as well. Is this kind of cordialness that I am no better than you? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, that is sort of the the kind of the the principles of Jantelagen in in Sweden is really that no one is better than anyone else, and so you don't you know cut in line. You know, you'll you'll stand at the subway, and everybody takes their takes their cue right in a line before the subway's right. even there. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's you know that in that that respect, I think kind of happens you know all gender wise. So that that's kind of one thesis that I'll say you know just about the culture of Seattle. The other thing I would say is that you know. Seattle didn't really have its, you know, major development boom, right? I mean, there there surely is like old-time developers, you know, Marty Selig and and others and and now, you know, his daughter who's Jordan is is rather remarkable is is definitely assuming aspects of the business, right? Uh-huh. But I would say that there there isn't like those characters that you would have kind of like New York and LA that have kind of been their legacy and who kind of control it. And I think probably hats off to Paul Allen to selecting, you know, Ada to kind of run his his portfolio and, and lead, right. you know, the Vulcan organization. And I just, I think maybe there's just an aspect of the, the cycle for developers, you know, really was later, you know, um, really sort of surged, obviously. I mean, we doubled our market size in the last 10 years, right? In, right. in scale of, from an office perspective. And so it, it minted probably a lot of new developers and and you know especially if the if the environment is definitely more friendly for for people who want to get into it 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 facilitated us Mm -hmm. so that's i guess my only thesis 
Okay. Well, it may be a coincidence, but I think it's not. So yeah. it has to fit somewhere. Yeah. So talk about moving over to EOP then. At the EOP then, right. This 400 Fairview project that I talked about, we also uh, started to work on a downtown high rise. Um, we had secured a really amazing site across from the Seattle Art Museum from the Samus Foundation. Uh-huh. And uh, we started to envision a new building. And we said, you know, everything about an office building downtown really destroys the urban environment. And so we said, what can we do to get it out of the way? So we engaged in a really different process. We created a uh, an RFC process. We called it an RFC because it was a request for conversation. Because I didn't, I didn't really want to get back all these proposals from architects and really just have to have to read them. And I didn't want to have to put them through all that work. When really, all I wanted to know is, can I work with you? And do you have the tenacity to kind of drill through and go through this project with us together? Uh-huh. Yeah. You wanted what you did with Brooks. Yeah, exactly. So we, uh, we embarked on that journey and we, you know, ultimately worked with the city to kind of, you know, a very cumbersome process to lift an office building 85 feet off the ground and build a village underneath it. And so we started to, you know, build this project, um, design this project and title this project. And at that same time, you know, 400 Fairview, we had sold 90% interest in it. We kept 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, a, that took a lot of convincing at Skanska. To keep 10%? To keep 10%. Yeah. We, we felt as though it was going to be important to keep it, to finish off really the retail environment. And then also to tell the story about our next project, because we could walk people through it since we owned it. Right. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, as the legend goes, um, John Gregg does a West Coast tour, mm-hmm. right? He goes and tours all the office assets, you know, the latest office assets on the West Coast. Right. And the last one he walks into is 400 Fairview. Apparently, he took out his phone the first time that trip and photographed and said, this is amazing. We need people who know how to do this. So then I get a call and, uh, you know, I sort of got asked to come to the organization and, you know, I said, look, I got a great job. I don't really need a new job. And quite honestly, like the job you're offering me is like the job I have, except more limitations. (laughs) And uh, so then uh, they kind of went back to the drawing board and, uh, you know, offered me the COO position. And I said, okay, well, that's really interesting, but what does that mean? And I felt like, okay, so once once we've sort of designed and built Two and U, which is the the next tower, you know, what's really left to build? What's really left to influence? And I was mm-hmm. like, well, we could, we got to influence other cities, you know, influence the way we build in general, right? Because I I fundamentally believe, and it's shown that every one of these assets we were a part of, we got a premium on the sell, absolute premium on the sell. Long story made short. Um, there were some changes at Skanska because you always, there's something that has to push you. It's a push-pull at the same time. This is true. Yeah. And uh, and so I decided to leave. And the interesting thing was at the time, the current CEO was planning on moving uh, the organization of the leadership to San Francisco. And so I had to make a commitment to move to San Francisco. And, you know, Mark Stiles, the, uh, the journalist actually reported that, hey, you know, why Lisa's moving to San Francisco? Because, you know, the news, the news article came out that I was joining EOP at the time. And, you know, I would say kind of six months into joining the organization, you know, at one of the board meetings, uh, Blackstone says, we want you to run this. So that was about a year and a couple months ago. Yeah. <laughs> so go back for a second, because it, it's funny, uh, you know, as recruiters, we think about what is a COO all the time. And yeah. to me, a yeah. COO is all about who the CEO is. Totally. Th- that, that that answers the question, yep. but there's no 
there's no, oh, give me a job spec for a CEO because I just don't believe no, it. No, I mean, you know, honestly, what happened was I was like, well, what does that mean as COO? Right. Right. I said, you know, that can mean a lot of things. And, you know, at the time, uh, the EOP platform was taking sort of the corporate services, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, structure, right? They were going to take the IT accounting, HR, and that function and move it to a corporate services platform that was going to service all of the Blackstone real estate verticals. So the COO wasn't going to really manage those components, which I was like, great, because that's not what I'm interested in. You know, the discussion was, look, we want someone to really teach strategy, someone who's going to deal with how we're going to operate in the future, Mm -hmm. start to kind of align, you know, how we think about these spaces and teach an organization to do it. Because essentially, the the sort of the EOP structure has really been, you know, asset managers and people who sort of, you know, babysit assets, you know, for, for, for lack of a better term, than someone who really sort of strategically thinks about the vision of servicing a market, mm-hmm. you know, like a developer would. That was my pitch, right? That was my pitch is coming on as as COO is recalibrate the organization and start to, you know, shift the strategy in terms of how we thought about real estate. Right. So a couple questions about that. First of all, they're not developing. No. So you're well, out I mean, of the development chair yeah, at least yeah, for a while, yeah. but the vision drew you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, Willis Tower, we're, you know, it's practically a development deal. I mean, that deal is, you know, we're investing $600 million into an existing tower, right? It's 4 million square feet. It's a city of its own. Think of Sears Tower, folks, yeah, in case yeah, we're sorry. forgetting yeah, exactly. Willis. Yeah. Exactly. Um, uh-huh. And so, you know, that is a development deal um, by far, right? And so some of these repositionings are, su- I mean, the, the the project gets more interesting, the, 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 the more um, constraints there are. Yeah, yeah. And on that, it's sort of like, there's all these buildings, these legacy buildings across the, you know, the landscape of cities that were built in the 70s when urban environments were so hostile, right? We we came to work and we left we left work. They weren't about community. They were about creating the silos of production, right? Mm-hmm. And Willis Tower was one of them, or Sears Tower was one of them, Ooh. right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, was built on half the block. And, and so this was one where as I came in, you know, I could tell that, the style and the way of repositioning assets was still, you know, sort of the old way of doing it where you just, you know, create volume and you create space and then you lease it you right. know, as opposed to creating a vision for how this can actually satisfy the desire of the market. Uh-huh. And so the desire of, I don't know how many people work in Sears Tower. Willis Tower, excuse me. Uh, 20,000 by so, the time it's fully leased. And when we bought it, it was actually about 78% leased. Uh-huh. And, you know, with the visioning and we've 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 repositioned a couple of the floors, it's now over, what, 92% leased? Well, well, go back to your prior comment if you want to make a difference in your career and you think, okay, I have tw- tw- did you say 20,000 people? 20,000 people. L- work in work Sears Tower. Yeah, Sears Tower. I, I'm still trying to get over that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I guess it's got to be true. But it's it's m- 4 million feet, right? Right, no, it's so true. But it's just a shock. Every million feet, you're kind of like, you got about, you know, 5,000 workers. So let me, so, let me ask a different a question. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask a different question to come back to this. So the, the different question is, I have assumed over time that Blackstone's model is here is the conduit through which we run office buildings while we own them, and we'll get rid of them if we can, should, or it makes economic sense. Yeah, yeah, And therefore, what you described before as the traditional EOP within Blackstone is it's an asset management vehicle. To turn that into best of class or something with a vision, that's a different concept. Well, I wouldn't say best of class, because I definitely think that 
That's a buzzword too. Yeah, so. yeah. Visioning and positioning is really where it's at. Okay. Okay. And so the way I like to describe it is, uh, and this may not be, you know, totally appropriate, but, uh, you know, the assets that we have are really islands of misfits. The, the holiday cartoon, you know, where all the toys uh, in Santa's uh, village are, yep. the, the ones that don't yeah, have yeah, the square yeah, wheel and so yes. forth, right? They're on this island of misfits, right? Mm-hmm. So we have the island of misfits. And for some reason, they have, you know, a known vacate coming up. They um, have lost their luster. Whoever we purchased them from starved it of capital, right? And so the last thing that we do is starve anything of capital, so, because we we definitely have the capital to make the moves. Um, but the the best way I would like to describe it is that, you know, the, the Blackstone motto is buy it, fix it, sell it, right? Yeah. And we work on the buy side of it, right? Because we have the market intel of wherever right. we're located. And we do the fixing it, and then we do the selling it. And so we're that conduit of where that happens. The minute the asset has a really great performing cash flow, we don't value it. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone else will value it more right. than we will. Uh-huh. Um, so... I think the thing that's really interesting is sort of the pace of change at which you can really give these assets a second life and, mm-hmm. you know, and how you can sort of take, uh, you know, these buildings and, ex- you know, exert a, a large degree of creativity that, you know, understands their, their, their promise or their position for a particular segment of the market. And that's a puzzle. And right. I think, you know, as real estate, you know, as a real estate developer is what I kind of call myself. Um, you know, that puzzle is unique each time and it's fun. It's really, really fun. Interesting. It In the apartment business, you buy it, fix it, sell it, and no one knows that you did it because they just drove by it before, yeah. right? And yeah. the value is created. It's a great business. Yeah. In the office business, we all know the buildings you own. Right. No one, you drive by some office buildings you didn't know some, but a lot of them, let's say Willis Tower, for right. example, they're iconic buildings. Yes. Yeah. So you're buying, fixing, selling an iconic building with 20,000 people in it. Right. That was starved capital and was at 78% <laughs> occupancy. Right. So right? that's a huge, yeah. that's a development job. That's yeah, more than totally a development is. job. Totally is. I mean, you know, most of the most of the assets that we have that uh, they won't have, you know, n- nearly they, that 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 thing is a scale of itself of its own, right? But most of it will be lobby repositionings and creating, you know, amenities that actually create um, optionality for work right. and places for community. Because I fundamentally believe that as you know, uh, workers need three things for a balanced diet of mm-hmm. you know, productivity. And you know, oftentimes what we're hearing is a lot of people talking about. Uh, open office. Open office is dead. Open office is dead. And I like to say, well, yeah, open office is dead as much as like, you know, eating apples will kill you, right? And it's sort of like, no, if if all you ate was apples, right, that probably would some point lead to your death without any kind of protein or other type of nutrients. And so my point is, is that every worker needs concentration space. Every worker needs collaborative space. And mm-hmm. every worker needs community space. And they all have to be there in balance if you really want to maximize the effectiveness of people in space. And to talk about one in isolation doesn't really work. And so my point is, is that when we're repositioning these assets, we think about those three things. And in mm-hmm. most cases, companies today can't necessarily compete with the Facebooks and the Googles. And so we've got to provide that third component of community. Right. And and how much of this becomes the recreation of the asset and how much becomes how your team yeah. operates and manages yeah. it? And think about my friend, the reception guy yeah. at, at one Spear Street or yeah. Spear Street Tower. 
how much are in each operations and how much yeah. is in conceptualization? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think that that is shifting more and more. I think traditionally everybody would tell you it's in the physical space, uh -huh. right? But as we start to look at these shortened lease terms, right. right, where tenants are looking for because they can't really, you know, evaluate how long their their business or, or what their business is going to look like in two years, that um, if they try sign a shorter term lease, you've really got to satisfy them. And so the service level, the component of how the building operates, uh -huh. um, some people argue that that actually will determine core. Like a mm -hmm. core building, right? Um, more so than anything, and I actually argue that um, you know tenants need uh, sort of like there's three things that are determining value um, in a building, and you know particularly in a lease transaction, the first one is really having um, flexibility in the space, whether it be you know rofo rofer rights, termination rights, because that kind of like length of time that you're willing to commit to a lease is a serious risk, a serious business risk. And the lease is probably the last thing, real estate has been the last thing that has been scalable for a business with the exception of, you know, we work coming in right. and things of that. The second thing is just the availability, the pace of availability of the space because decisions are made so much sooner now and waiting six months for something to build out, companies just can't wait, right? And then the third thing is really sometimes called culture, sometimes called energy. I call workplace experience. And that workplace experience has a huge value today. And that is sort of the, I would call it the white space where current landowners aren't really providing it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the retooling of our organization is how can we actually pro provide more of that workplace experience, whether it being events and levels of service that really make sort of the daytime use of things more convenient, easy, and quite fun. And how's that experience when you walk out of your office suite? Is it in the building or somehow are you, like when we leased our space five years ago, they said, okay, figure it out, good luck. They didn't care about what was in here <laughs> at right, all. right. Do you enter into their space or that gets into a different business model? Yeah, I mean, that that is a service that definitely, you know, I mean, we're doing more spec suites and definitely in certain markets, um, there's a requirement to do more turnkey and to kind of just deliver the space, uh, largely because the construction costs have gone through the roof and they're at the highest they've ever been in the last 10 years now. Right. Um, so I think what you're going to see from us is kind of an expanded service level offering, you know, in that, just because that we, we actually literally did a tenant EKG. So we right. sort of know all the highs and the lows of when, you know, in the tenant leasing process from, you know, engagement to sort of occupancy. Right. And we do know the lowest moments are, you know, in the leasing process and also uh, in the build out of the space are the lowest moments. It feels the most stressful for, you know, our customer. Well, it's expensive. So it, it, at least it for is. me, I'm, again, small business and owner. It's, it, yeah, and it's uncertain, like what you're going to really get. Also, we, when we did it, we got someone who, who won't listen to this podcast so I could, you know, talk about it, but it was a kind of a low level interior designer and it was all standard. Oh, we'll yeah. give you this, the thing. Yeah. So what's standard? I didn't even want not, I didn't know what not standard was. Yeah. Because five years ago was at the beginning of the revolution. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus recruiters like closed doors, which. Right. I guess we have to have. I don't know that, but yeah. so we promised we would talk about WeWorks as part yes. of this conversation. Yes. So how does that affect this? And are they a major? They specifically, or their competitors that are now coming into the market, or is it going to be you? <laughs> well, let's. I, I think you know WeWork has done a remarkable job at responding to a marketplace that landowners haven't. Right. right. And so, you know, I. Uh, 
I think that like, you know, anybody, I mean, you look at Amazon, they've obviously created a masterful, huge business by solving pe- customer pain points. And, right. you know, this was a significant, you know, pain point for businesses and organizations is really, you know, the leasing process and getting access to space and actually having some kind of energy in the space if you're, you know, one, two person company. And now, you know, it's extended to sort of small to mid-sized to enterprise-sized companies. Um I think, you know, uh, they have caused a, a really great disruption in the business. Um, I think, you know, uh, you know, whether or not like, you know, its current form and how they currently operate is, is going to stay. I, I, I don't think, you know, their current form is, is going to stay largely because, you know, um, they're continuing to evolve themselves just mm-hmm. as much as, you know, Amazon as a book reseller is no longer really like we don't know them as a book reseller, right? They kind of a amazing logistics and, you know, host, uh, cloud space and and you know now sell us movies and a bunch of other things right online so i think that over time you know their business model is going to morph and change because they're going to continue to sort of you know evolve their understanding of the customer that they're serving um i think you know if you're sort of asking whether or not it's competitive to our space um you know i think uh i think the market's big enough you know um they're they're currently doing it all within you know the houses of owned real estate Right. And what I do think is that, you know, for us, it's teaching us to pay pay attention to the marketplace. And one of the things we think the marketplace really wants is, is both fixed space or term space and also flexible because there's an idea identity component that, you know, might be missing if you just completely go into sort of a WeWork. And I know WeWork is also doing uh, sort of a, uh, uh, they call powered by we, where they'll put their program on top of, you know, the business program to just give sort of workplace experience. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think it's a growing piece of the market. Um, the capital markets don't understand it. Um, it's hard to understand the long short problem. Right, right. And there's a duration matching issue right. for sure. Um, and I don't think there's kind of a capital consideration in their model for the refresh. Because uh-huh. I think, you know, if you looked at first gen now and, and compared to sort of like what they're building now, it's it's very different. And uh-huh. so there's some capital expenditure to kind of keep that stuff fresh. Because I think there's a pretty sizable density of people in the space and it's probably a little bit harder on it than uh-huh. most. And I, and I assume that they are tenants of yours and competitors of theirs are tenants of yours. Yeah. Well, so we, um, we actually, I think we, we only have one building, um, and it's a JV building that they're actually in in our entire portfolio of 40 million feet. Yeah. We do have plenty of their competitors in our buildings. Um, and, um, I don't think we had the right type of assets that they were looking for initially. I mean, I think it's changed now, but you know, Mm -hmm. in, in markets like this market, there's not a lot of space, you know, in our portfolio. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the, the, the more sort of headline thing that we've done is that, you know, if you, we've watched certain real estate owners, um, essentially do a flexible space. In other words, what they'll, they'll do is they'll lease space to a tenant on a shorter term, call it a year or two years. Um, and they're only finding that they're getting a, like a 10% premium on that, right? Where basically, you know, the co-working operators who are providing this whole workplace experience and have a brand around it, that be sort of the WeWork, the Industrious, you know, Re- Regis, those all have a brand around right. it. Um, they're able to get two times the market rent, right? Where if a landowner does it themselves and just does a short-term 
you know, sort of lease expiration. Um, it's only a 10 to 15% premium max. So there's some other dynamic that's allowing you to sort of get that increased hmm. bump right. in what a tenant is willing to pay. And my, you know, my sentiment on that is it has a lot to do with the experience that's being provided, right? And that, you know, in those experiences that are being provided, there's also a level of services of stocking refrigerators and a front office manager and things of those nature that as you as a tenant who go to lease in those spaces realize, oh, these are all these things I don't have to provide for and I don't have to have this individual servicing my front desk who's taking right. care of all my mail and everything. So I, um, what, what our sort of solution was is like, look, these guys know how to do it really well. Let's partner with them. So we interviewed you know, I think 15 different operators and we saw all the different scales and the ways of which they're approaching the business. And they're all, they're very different. I mean, mm -hmm. if you think they're all the same, they're not, right. um, you know, and some of the things that are very, very different are their customer acquisition channels. In other words, how they bring customers in. And, you know, um, most of them, 70% of the customers coming in are not through brokers. So if this portion of the marketplace grows right wow. in the next you know, I think some people theorize, I think it could grow to be as much as 10% of the marketplace because I just think that the flexibility has incredible value to tenants. Um, that um, those people that have the most savvy customer acquisition channels are going to be, you know, probably the most successful. And so we partnered with Industrious. We selected Industrious for a property down um, uh, in Southern California on the west side of L.A., and uh, they um, they are our partner there. And um, I think the cool thing about it, the way that we're structuring it, is they are creating the whole workplace experience for, you know, the 1.3 million square foot campus, as opposed to just one workplace function. Right. <laughs> so um, they're, you know, curating events and, and dealing with F&B and things of that nature. So the way to think about it is it's like a hotel management agreement. Right. You know, it's like a branded, flagged, you know, hotel management agreement that comes on top of an owned property. Mm -hmm. And that makes more sense for Blackstone, given the buy it, fix it, sell it, yeah. than it might if you were long, long-term hold right. of the properties. Right. right. And I think, you know, we give, we we set up the structures so it allows the next buyer to decide, you know, uh -huh. how they want to treat that. So uh -huh. we have, you know, flexibility in it. Right. But we think ultimately that the, the subsequent buyer who's going to really value the asset is going to value this relationship that was created at the property because we think it's going to be pretty, pretty spectacular, pretty, uh -huh. pretty special. Talk about being part of Blackstone and yeah. what you've learned being part of Blackstone. Yeah. Because I think you have the best and the brightest or at least the biggest. Yeah. But what's that no, mean for you? No, there's definitely the brightest. I mean, yeah. it's just like it's... Um, brightest and hardest work. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, uh, just the exposure to it first was was quite a quite a change. I mean, I spent the majority of my career, 18 years, you know, in Seattle and the West Coast. And to kind of go to my first board meeting on Park Avenue, right, with, you know, this kind of marbled table and little microphones and mahogany in the background and, you know, probably 50 suits in front of me was right. quite quite a scene. And uh, and I think, you know, the, the thing that I really value and respect um, about the platform is just the, the, the sheer quantity of transactions and the visibility of transactions and movement and flow of capital and seeing, you know, the, the nature and the number of deals um, that, that are happening within, you know, that organization mm -hmm. and getting to, you know, have a, have a view into all of that is, is remarkable. And the network of relationships, um, from, you know, going to sort of, you know, uh, 
go anywhere sort of in, in the world and, you know, you can get lined up to go get a property tour, you know, uh, any, anywhere in the world because there's, mm-hmm. you know, owned real estate. Um, and I think, um, you know, obviously John Gray is, is, is a remarkable human being and, uh, you know, meeting him and, you know, hearing his passions and, and also, you know, just the demeanor that he carries, um, and the sharpness that he has around understanding the real estate, you know, in so many markets. I mean, Mm. that to me, like joining and having a a pretty deep purview on the West coast and some of the markets that Skanska was involved in, but now like really entrenching myself in so many different markets and seeing the trends that are kind of unfolding across the country. Um, but for him and the whole organization there to sort of see it across the world is something else. I bet it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking right side and left side of the brain, and I forget which side might be challenged here, but <laughs> I think it's the right side of the brain is, is has to show up to every moment. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, if you think like sort of right side of the brain being creative and present moment, yes. And then there's a deep left side of the brain of, of, uh, of Blackstone that is very much entrenched in sort of the history of the numbers, uh-huh. right? And sort of understanding kind of where cap rates have been and where rents have been and where, where they might be going you know, from a historical perspective. Um, but very, very deeply left brain and everything is about the math, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what's been remarkable to me is, you know, communicating the vision and the brand and um, I would say the vision around a project and the positioning around the project and Mm -hmm. getting them to see that how that actually creates value. Mm -hmm. We've seen it already in like my short tenure um, with, you know, what David Moore has done in Chicago on Willis Tower, right? Mm -hmm. Really teaching and, and showing how we create a vision and passionately get, you know, the community to understand it. Mm-hmm. It's been really, really fun. And and for Blackstone to buy, you know, buy into it and really see it because they're seeing results. Right. Um, a question I haven't asked you, uh, amazingly. So you're a woman in a male-dominated part of the business. Yeah. And we've touched on it for seconds, but not in any deep way. We won't have time for a really deep conversation <laughs> about it. But a- any comments about that? Just thoughts, particularly the office business, but anywhere yeah. in commercial real estate. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the office business is probably the last bastion yeah. of, of, you know, space for definitely a female executive in the in the, in the the industry. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with it was CEO to CEO. And so the majority of CEOs in the primary organizations were men. Mm-hmm. And so you needed, you know, someone of like mind to kind of relate to right. that other individual. So um, I think now that we've seen that transition of our business kind of get more B to T or B to B to mm-hmm. C is that I think it's created a, a sort of a deeper opening, you know, for that, um, particularly in office market. But I, I think the one thing I would say is that, you know, there's there's definitely been sort of like wake up moments where, you know, I didn't I didn't like dawn on me that like, uh, you know, you sort of kind of like uh, wake up and you're like, wait a minute, you know, like, for example, I, I remember being at Heinz and look at, looking at my closet one day and realized they were all start shirts. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? You know, I, I'm all looking like them. But, you know, there was this aspect of where you had to fit in. I did what I could to fit in. And then, you know, and then I think there's some pivotal moments. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, one sort of really pivotal moment was, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the CEO at Skanska who, you know, decided to mentor me. And I was like, you know, I was like, why is he mentoring me? You know, this is kind of interesting, right? And so I said to him, I was like, I was like, Mike, why, why, why are you mentoring me? You know, at one of the lunches I flew to New York to have with him. And he's like, oh, that's easy. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, gosh, if I have the opportunity to mentor someone who's going to be CEO of this this company someday, I was like, that's a real honor. And I was like, 
what, 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 me? me? And I like sat there for a second going, right. you, you've got to be kidding me, you know? And I was like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, it can be me, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think when, when Blackstone did approach me and sort of said, hey, you know, hey, we want you to be C- COO and, or actually we want you to be MD. I was kind of like, you know, I don't think that's big enough for me, you know? And then came back and said, you know, well, how about COO? And I was like, okay, that, that's a little bit more interesting, but what does that mean? And I don't think I would have had that sort of like, you know, kind of like, I guess you would call it courage or sort of strength to sort of just say that to Blackstone in the moment if I didn't believe it, but I believed it because Mike told me, you know? And I think I think about that a lot because I go, well, how can I do that for other women, right? Mm-hmm. How can anybody do that for other women? Because I think, you know, other women don't have, you know, maybe sort of like someone who's really, you know, given, given them the courage or the belief that they can be it. I mean, I think naturally men believe that they can do things beyond what they're capable of doing. Cause we, I see it all the time in interviews. You right. probably see it as well. Mm, all the time. Versus like women who are always constantly discounting sort of like, oh, well, yeah, I've done that, but I don't know if I could really do that over there where, you know, a man would sort of generally just say, oh yeah, that's mine. I can do that. I can do that 10 times over. Right. And so I think, you know, our roles as leaders is really to free people up from sort of, you know, I guess, the, I guess the, the sort of the famous quote, and I forget who said it, but it was like, you know, real leadership is not only seeing the seed, you know, the seedling, but also seeing the tree and allowing that other person to see the tree as well. Wow. It, totally true. It, it, and it's interesting. I don't know men coming into the business in the same way, have that feeling of responsibility, long-term thinking. It just doesn't go there. No. And it's honestly like what I've, I've been teaching, you know, because the, the, the next sort of like uh, my whole leadership team is men, right? And all the SVPs are men in my organization. And interestingly enough, it's been super fun to kind of like teach them how to develop people. And also like even just kind of like, you know, one of, one of my SVPs was wanting to sort of like, you know, make an offer to a woman VP. And he's like, oh, you know, she's worth, you know, X. So I'm going to go, you know, 90% of X. And I was like, why aren't you just giving her X? And he's like, well, you know, I mean, like, well, because she's making this. I was like, oh, so you asked her how much she was making. Well, that's the first mistake. It's now no longer longer illegal. I'm sorry to say this is my favorite question. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so anyway, you know, he was kind of blown away that she didn't negotiate with him once he made the offer at X, right? And so I've been, you know, a big advocate for sort of like, you know, creating situations and also teaching, you know, our organization how to develop people and how to encourage people because, you know, that's how you build an organization, right? Through the people. Um, Two final questions. Um, One is a question I've asked every guest. If you had some advice to give that you haven't in our last hour already (laughs) to a young person thinking about a career in real estate, what would you, what would you say? Um. You know, I had this question given to me, like when I was on the stage with a couple of politicians uh-huh. and, uh, and it kind of like, you know, led into sort of a bit of a press article that sort of got me into trouble, but also kind of created a bit of my brand statement of who I am personally. But, but basically I might, I might answer the question, um, uh, the way that I did then, and then I'll kind of give a little ancillary, you know, sort of um, piece. But, but basically, I said, um, you know, when you work in the urban environment, and if you're in real estate development, you know, what you put on the landscape affects people, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like art in its largest form. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it uh, it 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 changes an urban environment. And it's there for quite some time, and so 
I guess what I'm saying is, I had this pregnant pause, is you got to give a shit. <laughs> Thank you. It's interesting. It's one of the theses of theses, not the, yeah, theses. Theses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of leading voices because I yeah. think real estate makes a difference. And when we screw it up, yeah. it has made a bad difference yeah. in our world. Yeah. And our obligation going forward in the world that we live in now with urbanization and suburbs yeah. and global warming, our obligation is to make these urban environments totally. amazing. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, the, the, the problem is, is that most of the real estate programs are driven by, you know, how to run spreadsheets, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's not all about the spreadsheet. And I think, you know, I'm waiting for the time of when people really choose with their feet um, and they choose sort of stellar projects that have thought about these kinds of things mm -hmm. and they pay for them. And, you know, I do believe that, you know, those, uh, those will be the ones that actually have the highest levels of occupancy um, yep. because people will be drawn to them. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's kind of a big, big thing of mine and my, my advice to people getting in the business and you don't get into the business just because you want to make a, you know, a ton of money. Um, I think that those sort of like yields are, are, are changing today. And so, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm hoping that the, those that are drawn to the passion of, of, you know, doing well and then making, making money by doing well, right. you know, uh, which I think is really, really important. Um, but uh, the other thing I would sort of say is just, you know, the, the sort of the two things that have really served me well, you know, throughout my entire career is just having, you know, passion for what I'm doing. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you lose sort of passion in it, um, it's sort of like find what it is that you love. But also it's just unbelievable tenacity. And when I say unbelievable tenacity, it's like knowing that there's a better way to do it and not getting fatigue. You know, mm -hmm. and I find, you know, architects will get fatigue, team members will get fatigue, and, you know, how you can motivate your your people and yourself to kind of drive through sort of design fatigue or deal fatigue or things mm -hmm. of that nature and just have absolute tenacity. Totally. Well, I think it's about believing in what you're doing, because yeah. if you believe in what you're doing, you see that as a long-term thing, you don't get tired. Right. I mean, it's different. So, this gets to the very, very last question. <laughs> How don't you get tired on a bike ride? You mean like 130 miles, uh, you know, in, in the Rockies? I guess that, that would be the question. Yeah. I haven't been there, but maybe you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I love cycling, and what I love about it is, you know, one, you can't look at your iPhone, Right. It's My just, favorite it's, part. It's a, it's a form of meditation. Um, and, you know, even though there might not be a lot of thinking, there will be sort of the thoughts that kind of come into the subconscious. So it's really good. But the other thing that I really love about it is there's no other thing, particularly when I push myself hard on a climb or, you know, at altitude or things of that nature or a long ride that I feel my body. Right. And I feel sort of the limits of what it can do. Mm -hmm. And I just push it a little bit further. That piece of it just makes me feel alive. And also the pace at which you can take things in, particularly if you're even on a mountain bike in the on, on trails, it's like mm -hmm. much faster pace than sort of like hiking. And it's a little bit more like concentration, you know, right. on what it is that you're doing. But road cycling in itself has just been an absolute passion of mine. And I think maybe last year I had, you know, close to 8,000 miles in. Um, this mm -hmm. year, I think I'm close to like, you know, 4,000, you know, halfway or a little more than halfway through the year. So mm -hmm. it is definitely where I spend a lot of time. Yeah. I, I have the same experience and I call it meditation too, which yeah. is interesting because no one, unless they know what it is, experiences that. Yeah. But it's two or three hours in your head, you may be with other people, and you do. I always start with the list of things I think about, and then they start disappearing. Yeah. And of course, I listen to podcasts, but that's a different story. <laughs> if I'm not listening to a podcast, just the 
the mind wanders. Yeah. It's the most meditative thing. Yeah. And, and me, I write speeches or I give talks. It all comes to me. I stop and write little notes. Yeah. Because I have to, it comes out when my mind is free associating them. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great activity, great sport. I used to bike race as well. And there's a lot of analogies in terms of, you know, business and bike racing, mm -hmm. um, you know, as a, as a, as it relates to sort of just the team sport of it and being in the draft and, you know, moving ahead or you're moving behind. I would you know, think kind so. Of things. So. Well, thank you. Lisa, this has been a great conversation. I really, really appreciate your being guest. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's fun. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. 